Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 272. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to review and discuss Confessions of a Shopaholic as it celebrates its 15th anniversary. Yes, so this is not a traditional Disney film. This was actually produced under Touchstone. But since we have been through so many of the animated films and so many of Disney live actions, we're going to start to incorporate these more and more into our normal reviews. Yes, because Touchstone and Buena Vista Pictures, they are all technically Disney movies. They are. I mean, we have done Roger Rabbit, which is a Touchstone. Right. But people don't necessarily connect it to that because of the animation. Um, but, you know, we're almost 300 episodes in, so we're going to start branching out a little bit more. And, you know, some may argue that these aren't traditional Disney films, but if if we're not going to get to them, technically we couldn't really do Marvel or Star Wars either. Correct. So we're going to start taking a look at these. And what I find the most interesting is that you really wanted to do a what the February, which Uh is like my least favorite thing. And you were pushing for it. I pushed against it. I just feel like it sucks the air out of the room coming off of January and talking about all of the buzzy new releases. And I feel like we kind of reached a compromise because even though we are not picking from the bowels of Disney films and unpopular titles, This is like your own personal what the February because you don't typically enjoy rom-coms. And if you thought this was bad, wait until you see what I've got for you next week. It's not that I don't like rom-coms. It's that I don't like really bad rom-coms. There are a handful out there that I think are actually really good. Failure to Launch is a perfect example of a rom-com that I think, appeals to everyone. I think that that's well-written. I think it's funny. I think the characters are interesting. And then there's this. Pretty Woman is another great rom-com. Breaks the mold. Interesting characters, great writing, great acting. And then this happens. Um, I don't want to give too much more away because we we are going to give it the full treatment. So... I guess a good question is, what about this separates it from the ones that I believe get it right? And why do we think this movie got made when it got made? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. We meet shopaholic Rebecca Bloomwood, a journalist living in New York City. She works for a gardening magazine but wishes to work for the fashion magazine Alette. On her way to her interview at Alette, she stops into a store to buy a green scarf. However, she is short on cash, and when she tries to get cash back from a hot dog vendor, she is given $20, uh, the $20 that she needs. 
from a mystery man on the street. To make her go away. Mm-hmm. I probably would have done the same. <laughs> she arrives for her interview to learn that the position was filled internally, so instead she interviews at Successful Savings, another magazine owned by Dante West. This is the publishing company because she is told that they do like to hire and promote from within. It's there that she meets with Luke Brandon, the editor of Successful Savings, and our mystery man from the hot dog stand. Uh, Rebecca lies about most of her qualifications and hides her financial irresponsibilities. Um, she leaves the interview believing that she bombed it and goes back to her old office where she learns that her current magazine is folding, leaving her jobless. She and her roommate, Suze, see she is over $16,000 in debt while avoiding debt collectors. They get drunk and write a nasty letter and drop it in the mail for the editor of a let. Luke calls to invite her for a trial run, so she arrives and goes into the office and steals back the letter that she wrote to Alette. Luke gave her an assignment to discuss APR on store credit cards, but she plagiarizes it. Luke brings her to a press conference and forces her to ask tough questions to build her confidence as he believes that she can connect with the right people. He gives her until 3 p.m. to get her outline in. However, she misses the deadline after she goes shopping. She also lied to Suze about purging her collection, as advised in a self-help book that they had previously purchased. She writes a heartfelt article about being duped at the sale that she attended um, and buying counterfeit merchandise and sends it to Luke, who enjoys it and wants it printed. She convinces him to print it under a mystery pen name, so she goes as the girl in the green scarf. She's trying to hide her identity and hide from the debt collectors. Her article becomes an inter uh, international phenomenon. However, debt collector Derek Smith begins to call at the magazine to collect. Rebecca lies to Luke and tells him that Derek is an ex-boyfriend that is currently stalking her. Luke invites Rebecca to a conference in Miami where she receives a call from Derek telling her if she doesn't repay the debt by Monday, he will be forced to to visit her in person. Rebecca struggles with living the lie and wanting to tell Luke the truth. We learn that Luke's mother is a wealthy socialite. However, he wants to make uh, make it on his own. Rebecca is upset when she learns that Luke has a date set up with Alicia, the young lady who got Rebecca's job over at Alette. Upon her return home, Derek continues to pursue her, and Suze learns that, pur uh, that she purged nothing, so she makes her attend Shopaholic Anonymous meetings, which Rebecca quickly abandons. At a work dinner, Luke and Rebecca kiss, and the next day Derek arrives at Dante West, so Luke has him kicked out. However, when he calls Rebecca's cell phone, Alicia picks it up, and, he sets, and uh, she sets her up. Uh, Rebecca gets her hideous bridesmaid dress for... Suze's wedding after buying a new dress from Barney's to wear for an upcoming television appearance. Her new essay coach tells her to donate all of her new dresses and forces her to do it despite her debating it because she doesn't want to give up the bridesmaid's dress. Uh, she doesn't have enough money to buy back both at the thrift store that, uh, thrift store that she donates to him, them to, so she of course buys back which one? The Barney's dress for the TV appearance. At her television appearance the next day, Derek arrives and exposes her lives on air, infuriating Luke. When Suze sees that she thrifted the bridesmaid's dress, she is shattered. 
the execs at Dante West do not punish Luke for taking a chance on Rebecca and award him with a new magazine instead. Alette magazine offers Rebecca a job as they believe she can connect with their target audience. However, uh, Rebecca feels that it isn't the right move to continue down a self-destructive path, so she turns it down. Luke, meanwhile, leaves Dante West to start his own publication while Rebecca hosts a sale and auction to sell off her wardrobe and pay off her debts. She raises enough money to do so and pays Derek in pennies to make it as least convenient as possible. She gets her bridesmaid's dress back and makes amends with Suze before mending the fence with Luke and joins his new magazine writing a column called Confessions of a Shopaholic. The first thing that stood out to me when we watched this for the first time was before we even got a shot of any scene in this movie. I know where you're going with this. Obviously, Disney wanted to tag on to the popularity that was Devil Wears Prada. And this is kind of like a lot of rom-coms kind of started coming forth in the mid to late 2000s after The Notebook, after Devil Wears Prada. You did get things like Fool's Gold. Failure, uh, failure to launch. Basically, if Matthew McConaughey was in it before he won an Oscar, that was the realm that he lived in because it was very buzzy and trendy. And that's what they were trying to do here. However, my instinct, I'm not a Hollywood executive. My instinct is not, we need a rom-com that's going to appeal to women Let's get the guy that made Top Gun and hire Jerry Bruckheimer. I think that that was a very interesting choice to make. Probably not one that I would have made. Uh, yeah. Not a surprise at all that Disney would want to capitalize on the popularity of a film like this and produce something like this. But I was shocked to my core when I saw the Jerry Bruckheimer logo come up. Especially... Because this was following the original Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. Those came out 2003, 6, and 7. This was 2009. And this was how you followed it. It's, it's not a surprise at all when you see films like this that are similar to other ones. Like, oftentimes when there's an original screenplay being shopped around, if a studio passes on it, but they like the idea, they will then hire a writer to do something similar. And they'll just give them basically the bullet points, but they'll do an entirely new script. That's why you see some things like um, Friends with Benefits with Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, but you also have the other one with, I think it's Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher, which is like the same concept. Yeah. Um, and that's how you get two movies of the same ilk. This was totally not the case because yes it was trying to capitalize on the popularity of devil wears prada i completely agree with you i also think that there's a lot of legally blonde elements in here as far as you know sort of having to lie your way into a job um but this was actually adapted from a book the book is confessions of a shopaholic by sophie kinsella um, originally set in London, and they decided to switch it to New York to try and pull from the Sex in the City audience. So that's how we got here. Um, what I am curious about is 
which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did they write this script with the voiceover or was Isla Fisher cast first? Because I doubt that they would have cast her and then written a voiceover because this is where her accent really starts to come through because for the most part she does a pretty good job of concealing her Australian accent but this is where it really starts to poke through and it's very obvious see and I thought that it's you're right you're 100% right um but I felt like she didn't really have that problem when she did Wedding Crashers, which came out before this movie did. Right. No, and that's the thing. It's not a knock at her because I know that she's capable of concealing it and she usually does a great job. But I feel like with a voiceover, because there's nothing else going on, it's not like she's bouncing back and forth having a conversation. It's just so directly on her. I'm surprised that she would have been cast when this is the first part of the movie um you know and that's going to be a challenge um but I want to talk about the content of the voiceover a little bit because there was something that really struck a chord here and I thought was a really interesting setup for this film is she's talking about when she was a little girl she realized that there were two different types of prices there's the real prices versus mom prices and the real prices you get shiny things that last for three weeks and for mom prices, you usually get things that aren't as pretty, but they will last forever. And I just thought that that was as interesting a commentary on consumerism as it is on the quality. And the lasting impression of she got picked on because of her shoes and never forgot about it. Right. But I do like this idea that, you know, once we jump forward in time, we see her grown up they do establish that she is an adult with her own money, irresponsible though she may be. Um, at least they're setting it up that she has a job. This is all of her own volition with her own money. She's not taking anything from anyone and, and spending her parents' money. She's not a socialite, nothing like that. Not a trust fund baby. Right. Um, the only thing that I wish they would have leaned into a little bit more from the jump is that she, in the voiceover says, a man will never insert the cliche here as she laundry lists what a bag or a piece of clothing will never do versus what a man will do. And she'll have a lasting relationship with the material things, but a man won't. I wish they would have leaned into that a little bit more because they don't set up enough what void she is trying to fill because she seems to have it all. She's on her own. She's got the job. She doesn't have her own apartment. She's got a roommate. Okay, fine. But like, who doesn't living in New York City at that age? Yeah. I've never seen a more dislikable character within the first three minutes of screen time. She's insufferable because, you know, I came from a world where you were just thankful to have the things that you had. She almost seems like her entire motivation at this point in her life is some weird mommy issue that doesn't really exist. It's just that mommy didn't buy her the things that she wanted her to buy. And, you know, to your point, she's got the job, not her dream job, but guess what? Most people don't start in their dream job. Exactly. So... Yes, you never get the question answered as to what void that you had filled. It just seems like she latched on to one thing that happened as a kid 
And like, that's it. That's all we need to know. Right, and they're not even really setting it up so that she's tying her self-worth to these material things either. We Correct. just know she's not in the job that she wants. And to your point, I think that part of the issue with her job is that she's too young. And I don't mean the actress. I mean the character. When you're starting out in your field, you're not even going to be close to your dream job. You're just happy to have a foot in the door. So even though writing about gardening is not ideal for her, the alternative is being in more of an assistant or administrative role, which I realize why they steered away from that, because then you get Devil Wears Prada. In, in Devil Wears Prada, Anne Hathaway's character took the assistant job because it was directly related to publishing, which is what she wanted. Here... Rebecca is a journalist. She's already a journalist. We don't need to see her, you know, climbing the ladder. She's already actively writing. It's just not about the topic that she wants. And maybe I'm reading too much into the reality of it, but should it matter? You no. know, if, if you're writing and you like to write, you, you should be versatile. You should be able to write two different topics. I don't know one person that walked into their dream job out of college. No. Not a one. And we have no motivation as to, no real motivation as to why she wants to spend her money so irresponsibly. Other than she comes off very much like a brat. I want nice shiny things. She likes these things for their monetary value is what I'm getting off of her. See, like Cruella is a perfect example of she had a passion for fashion. See, here's the thing. I don't ever get a feeling in this movie that this character has a passion for fashion. She just has a passion for spending money. And I understand she's a shopaholic, but, but we don't ever know why she's a shopaholic. It's not like she has this obsession where she has to keep... I can't wear the same thing twice, and I need the newest and bestest. I need the new Jordans. I need the new iPhone. It's just, I need things because movie. They just made it her entire personality because it's not even about status either. Correct. It's the most unmotivated thing, and the fact that they just set it up weekly uh, oh, as she's sitting there in clunky brown shoes as a seven-year-old, yeah, I think it's it's just a very weak way to bat lead off with this character. And frankly, I don't think the character ever truly recovers from it. Right, because they also don't do a good enough job of establishing that it is a compulsion and an addiction. That's where you could have gotten away with not making it about status or not making it about um, high fashion is if it was just the idea of being addicted to swiping the card. She does sort of say that, but it's too little too late. It, it's at the very end, after right. she's already lost everything, and she's trying to explain why she does this to Luke, but it's never really made clear until that moment, because even though she keeps shopping there's always somebody to bail her out. She never really has to answer to anything until the very end. So the addiction of it all doesn't really play either. The problem is, it's, it's what you said. It's not clearly defined. Is it that you have to swipe your credit card 
because based on the title, that's what we believe that it is. But when she's like, bag, Gucci, belt, Prada, jacket, blah, blah, you know, throw a French name at something. I don't know. It, 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 there, There is no line in the sand. I'm not sure if you're obsessed with spending money or if you're obsessed with spending money on fashion. Because you also want to work at a fashion magazine. So are you a fashionista that's also a shopaholic? None of this ever gets clearly defined. And I'm wondering if part of... Now look, Jerry Bruckheimer didn't write or direct this film, but he did produce it. So he's helping build the team that's putting all of this together. And I'm wondering where Mr. Adventure Film Fighter Jet is not the right <laughs> means. I mean, seriously, there there is a disconnect here. And I'm wondering if fundamentally there is a disconnect starting from who made the film. Maybe. It's, it's a fair question, I think. Um, all right. So let's get into where she actually meets her green scarf for the first time. She's on her way to an interview. She's lured into the store. I love these talking mannequin hallucinations. So well done. This is where you get Jerry Bruckheimer because of the fantastic CGI. And that is not something that I say very often on this show or ever. Uh, just incredible. This scene was so fun. And I like that it is sort of foreshadowing that um, she needs this. Well, she, she doesn't need the scarf, but she's going to buy into everything that it represents. And I love the scene at the hot dog truck at the, at the cart when she's trying so desperately because all of her credit cards are maxed out. So she's trying so desperately to get the money back and she's ready to buy, what was it? 97 hot dogs. Something like that. that 97 dirty water dogs. She's willing to buy those at three bucks a piece to get the $20 back. And then Luke gives her the $20 and she goes, you just paid $23 for a hot dog. Okay. Well, you were just about to pay twice as much to get the scarf for a bunch of hot dogs that you didn't want, which within itself is ironic, but he says the most like poignant thing where he's like, what I think he said cost versus value or cost versus worth are two different things. You want your scarf. I want my hot dog. He may as well have held up a sign that says, look, people, this is the theme of the movie. I mean, it's poignant. I'm sure it reads really nicely in the book when you realize that that's going to be your theme there. But um, here it's, I think, a touch heavy handed. Um, so the other thing <laughs> I remember after the first time we watched this, you were saying this gave you anxiety because she's got four minutes to her interview. For her dream job. For her dream job. No, you should have been in the lobby 15 minutes ago. And I, I'm playing it close there. I'm, 15 minutes is, you know, the subway was late and you're sprinting through the door. You should allow at least a half hour. So that was completely unrealistic. But it doesn't matter because more unrealistically, the position has already been filled. From within, absolutely, I'll totally buy that. But like, they would have canceled your interview. They would have never not told you, oh, by the way, still come in. But regardless, I do really love um, the receptionist at Dante West and the Wizard of Oz metaphor that he just keeps leaning into that, you know, 
if you can start at successful savings, that's your your yellow brick road over to Alette. And then he calls her Dorothy. So I really thought that that was cute. And I was hoping that this guy was going to play a bigger role and that he was going to be the Stanley Tucci to the Anne Hathaway here. But we don't get nearly enough of him. You took the best character in the movie and basically erased him after that scene. He has one bit of dialogue later, and that's it. But he was the best character in this movie, frankly. Here's the other thing that I truly bump on. She gets up to the interview. She realizes that the person that she's interviewing with is none other than the guy that just bailed her out of the hot dog stand moment. It's Luke. So she hides the green scarf because she lied about it. She told him it's for her sick aunt or whatever. Um, Again, this goes back to the four minutes to the interview. It's perfectly plausible that you couldn't get the scarf over to your aunt in four minutes. So there was no need to hide it. And the other thing that really drives me nuts is he asked for her resume. Okay. She, she can't get it out. They have a really cheap moment where she bends over and he's looking at her butt. Um, we could have done without that whole thing. This is an interview for a writing job. What about the samples? Granted, this was not the job that you were going after. You have zero writing samples to show for yourself. That's more important than a resume when you're going after a job like this. Correct. Yeah, it, it, it just... But most people aren't thinking on those terms. You've worked in media. I've worked in media. We think on those terms. Most people don't, so they don't really care. Yes, but I work in media, but I'm not an editor, so I don't need a real... Every time that I go, if you're if you're applying for an editing job, you need samples of your work. In my role, my resume with my list of credits is going to carry me farther. But if you're interviewing for a writing position, you need to show that you can write. I understand that. But and I I can't believe I'm actually going to defend this movie. (laughs) Does South Shore Gina Marie, who's making her boyfriend take her to see this? On Sunrise Highway. Does she know that this is how it goes? Of course not. They're not going to be that literal with it because they're just trying to keep it going. Right. No. And the whole point of this interview is that Rebecca's supposed to be blundering her way through it by noticing the Abercrombie ad behind him or whatever it is. And I, I honestly couldn't tell. This is where it's so poorly written, too. I couldn't tell if she was truly distracted by that or if she was trying to distract him from the fact that she couldn't get her resume out of her bag uh i column a column b yeah but it fluctuates back and forth so you really can't tell what her motivation is there yeah because she finishes it with but you could just turn your desk around and stare at him all day ha not it it, it's such it like ugh Please, can we get it? Can we move yeah, on it's, from this? It is painfully clunky, and I'm embarrassed for everyone involved for this scene. Yeah, but I don't like anybody involved either, because everybody, other than Luke, everybody that we encounter in this film is an enabler. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about characters. I When I say everybody involved, I mean top to bottom, the writers, the producers, the directors, and even the actors in this scene. It is just so clunky. But let's talk about the enablers, because now we get a scene with Suze. I believe it was the scene that followed it. Um, 
the scene with Suze where she tears up the rent check because she knows it's going to bounce. And you want to be like, oh, that's a good friend. She's helping her out. But she tears it up and goes, nope, this is my apartment and I call the shots. Well, actually, it's my parents' apartment, but I live here, so I call the shots. It's like, so you're a spoiled brat, too. You're all, like, you are all the exact people that I cannot stand living in Manhattan. You know what I mean? Like, you are so disconnected from reality. Like, you're supposed to have, like, do not put that line in that you are living in your parents' apartment. So you're, I, we already know you're getting a break on it. And you're going to shortchange the meaning. Just tear up the check and say, I got it. I know you're good for it. Just show us you're a good friend. Yeah, Like it works in Friends where Monica's rent is grandfathered in. And that's how they're able to afford that apartment at such a young age. Because they were like, what, 24, 26 when Friends started? But here... This is exactly what Manhattan was pre-pandemic. This was the only way that you could afford it. Now, forget it. But nine times out of 10, it was people who were trying to start out off their career in their early 20s and their parents were paying for it. Um, but here's the part where I think they were trying to set up that she is an addict and it just falls apart because... You would think that by Suze tearing up the check, Suze is doing that not only to be a good friend, but because it's like, all right, here, let me take the heat of the rent off of you so that you can start paying down the minimum on your card with or cards in this case with what you would have spent on your rent check. And then she thinks that in turn, Rebecca is going to, you know, spread the money around and get some things taken care of. And that never happens. But it's because they start reading all of the bills and getting drunk. Okay. It's supposed to be your funny gal pal scene. I totally get it. It gets lost in the shuffle that that's not what happens. Right. And the other thing that's really getting lost too, is the fact that Rebecca lost her job because the magazine she was working at folded and Suze enables her there too, because yep. she's like, well, you didn't like that job anyway, so it doesn't matter. And that's why she tears up the rent check because she knows that Rebecca's just not going to be able to pay without her income because she's literally living paycheck to paycheck with all of her debt. Um, all of that getting lost because then she writes the two letters, one for a let, one for successful savings. And then we get the mix up, which you absolutely know is going to happen. But I like the idea that she fails up into the job that she just bombed the interview for. And that's yeah. where she should have had a writing sample because the writing sample is ultimately what got her the job. So she fails up. She lies about her experience, right? We know that she's done that. And again, more enabling. Her, her, her fraudulent behavior is so evident from the start. You're making every other character stupid to not see it. And contradictory. I'm glad you bring that up. Because once she lands the trial basis at Successful Savings, Sue says that she's a hypocrite. And she's the last person who should be writing about savings because she can't do it. And that should be the irony of it. Exactly. But... Being that Suze now has a track record of being supportive, don't you think she'd be on the side of maybe this is a good thing for you? Maybe you'll learn something. And instead, 
she's sort of calling her a hypocrite. Also, Rebecca has to pay her half of the rent. So why do you care about the ethics of what she's doing as long as she has a job and she can make rent with you and get out of debt and pay for your bridesmaid's dress, as it were? Yeah. All in all, it's it's just clunky. They buy that self-help book and the video. By the way, Ed Helms, what a great cameo. Yeah. Don't know where he came from, but that was a pleasant surprise. Pleasant surprise. This, the movie, we're going to talk about the cast in a little bit here. The cast is incredible. The cast list is unbelievable. It's a shame that they squandered it because it actually is a, it like, it is a stacked cast. On paper. When it comes to, ta- on paper, they're absolutely stacked. But I like the self-help book and... They write the letter, they get drunk, they're going through. Now, let me, uh, I want to bring this up too. As they're adding up her debt, yeah, it's over $16,000. It's not chump change, but that doesn't really hold up 15 years later, where I think the average yeah. person is about $15,000 in credit card debt nowadays. Yeah. That's the state of our economy and where we've taken a step backwards. Everybody goes, at, listen, there's nothing wrong. Everybody does it. I don't need something, but I treat myself to it. Everybody does that. Everybody carries a little balance once in a while. Right. But it's it's funny that the amount 15 years ago that seemed like an insurmountable hole is now just about average. Well, and where it really falls apart from a screenwriting structure, too, is that that amount could so easily be paid off if she sells all of her clothes. That was my exact note that I had. That's where I was going with this. Well, again, she's an addict. She's not going to think that way. But the person that should is Suze. And instead of making her sell her belongings, which would have been painful for Rebecca, she has her declutter. Now, we later learn that Rebecca doesn't actually do that. But how is clearing space going to help you? Because with this addict behavior... Clearing space just means that she's going to fill it with more stuff that she can actually see. Yeah, it's like being a hoarder. Yeah, but she doesn't do that. It would have been more effective if they did have her sell all of her belongings now, pay the cards down, and now you've just made room to buy more, so you fill it all over again. And then that's a jumping off point for Suze to be like, no, you need to go get help, professional help, because I can't help you anymore. Yeah, because if you purge all of this, it's worth nothing, but... New York is filled with consignment shops and it's Gucci, it's Prada, it's Chanel, you know, like these are all things that still have value and and in some cases have more value than they did when they were new because they don't come up on the secondary market all that often. So why, why her, her idea was just throw it away versus why don't you sell makes no sense. And another thing that contradicts before when Um, you get the very cliche of a bag will do what a man won't. She talks about the connection and how important these things are. She doesn't even know half of what she owns because as they're going through things and it happens later, oh, I forgot I had this. Oh, I forgot. Really? Because you just went on about how important it is and how these things mean so much to you and how blah, blah, blah. And then you don't even know what you have. Exactly. So how how valuable are they? Which I guess is a microcosm for the script. But the problem is it doesn't come off as a microcosm for the script. It just comes off as if it's poorly written 
coming from the mouth of a horrible character. That's how this comes off. Um, okay. Let's move on, though, from... We watch her copy the notes from Money for Dummies because she can't buy Monies for Dummies because her credit card gets declined. And then when she writes her article for the APR, Thousand Words, he says this this came from Money for Dummies. That whole thing could have been punched up for comedy so much more because of the irony of she can't even afford savings or Money for Dummies or whatever it was. You know, if Judd Apatow wrote this, it would be oh, it would yeah. be so good. If this was an Apatow film, it would be unbelievable. But it's not. And then in front of him, she Googles what was it, good stance on or good The angle. Yeah. That's what he wanted. Because in the piece that she wrote when she was drunk, she made the comparison of um I think it was shoes right. to the economy. And he thought it was this brilliant metaphor, but it was her own voice that came through. And that's what this first draft was lacking was her own thought, her own opinion and injecting that into the piece. Um, and, and that's where I just don't buy this either because as a journalist, even though she's a total fish out of water in this field and she clearly knows nothing about how to manage her money, she should be versatile enough to write about different topics. And even though that is where the comedy is supposed to come from, that she's writing for a financial magazine and can't control her own finances, like, obviously, you know, you know that from the trailer. Like, she should have been able... I think it would have been funnier if she had faked her way through this first assignment and it became very clear that she didn't know what she was doing. No, instead, she should have been fired on the spot where she's like, I Googled, am I fired? Yes. And again, there's another bailout by somebody else who doesn't hold her accountable. He takes her to a conference. And like, granted, he does completely take her out of her comfort zone by making her ask a question. You know, this is the moment where that's supposed to redeem Rebecca, I think, because at one point she stops taking the lines that he's feeding her and she's, or no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. That's usually what happens in this moment. And that's usually what makes you fall in love with this character. He feeds her a line that she's not supposed to say, but she doesn't know that. And he thinks that she had the guts to say it on her own, what he wouldn't do. It's not enough of a redemption arc here for her. And this is where you need it. Yeah. I do like the fact that she does write this article in her own voice and it comes from the heart and he likes it very much. However, are we also going to gloss over the fact that she missed her deadline to go shopping? Now, I understand it's the shopaholic, it's a compulsion, but how many opportunities is he going to give her? She missed a publishing deadline. I can sort of look the other way on that because he's also answering to higher ups. And he thinks that she has a really unique voice and he's sort of using her to get what he wants by pushing back to the people that are trying to tell him what to do. And he believes in her. 
What I struggle with more is that we know all of her credit cards are maxed because she couldn't even, you know, she split the payments to buy the scarf and she still needed that last $20. You've been fired from your job, so you don't have an income. And this writing trial, you've not been paid for yet. So how did you go on this shopping spree? Because she does have a frozen credit card, but she hasn't de-iced that yet. Yeah, we see that later on in the film. There's a lot of questions left unanswered. Yeah, so even though all of these items were on sale, we know that she's at her limit everywhere else. That That's where the addiction should come through. But it doesn't because you still managed to buy all of these things, but we didn't see you have to like lie, cheat, and steal to acquire them. We're also going to conveniently ignore the fact that she successfully made it up as she went along in the gardening magazine. Because you can't tell me that she was that much into gardening. I mean, we know that she's financially irresponsible, but you can't tell me that she's a green thumb that somehow was really good at writing that. She obviously figured it out and pivoted. How she couldn't just do this here and why it took her so long, I don't know. But once she does figure it out, this is where I feel like the character does get redeemed a little bit with the girl in the green scarf column because her shopping spree is what inspired another piece when she compares it to cheap cashmere right but i like the response to the column even though i think it was a tad heavy-handed how much everybody's praising her at this point um there is a pretty funny moment of comedy we haven't talked about the debt collector coming after Derek Smead he's probably my favorite character in this film um you know and and Suze has enabled her by coming up with all of these excuses as to why she can't get to the phone etc so now he's stalking her at her job um she tells everyone that it's an ex-boyfriend and I feel like that was sort of an obvious thing that was going to happen and an obvious excuse that she was going to make up but the fact that she says he's masking as a debt collector, I think, is pretty funny. I mean, that's that's really what it is. So she's got all of her bases covered as far as the lie here. Um, but I just sort of love this idea of like, if it really was an ex-boyfriend, you're, you're masking or you're moonlighting as the debt collector to get to her. Yeah, I thought that that was fairly well done. Although we, of course, know we know how this whole thing's going to blow up in her face. We know eventually he's going to expose her. Um, I also thought it was interesting that this magazine that was like lowest level of the totem pole at Dante West, um, um, like incredibly has this huge following at the same time where she becomes an international sensation because of the first article she wrote. Um, you would think that nobody reads this magazine the way that they talk about it at Dante West. And yet somehow it has all of this notoriety. I can buy that the word started to get around. I don't know about buying that it got around that fast because this predated Instagram and, you know, most of the social media apps that we had now, there was Facebook. But I think at this point it was still just for college students. 2009? I think I started using Facebook in 2008. I don't think it was quite as widespread just yet. No, it was. I was on Facebook in 05 when it was college students only. Oh, right. No. Okay. I'm dating myself. 2008 was end of college. Yeah. I mean, we already had Twitter by 09. Yeah, true. All right. So, no, I definitely by then that it spread pretty quickly. What I, 
I find sort of hard to believe is how widespread it got that it trickled down to her parents. That was my next, that's where I was going with this. And why of what she wrote when it came to be very careful, like honestly, the article is be very careful about what you get duped into. Her parents somehow took that as let's blow our life savings on an RV. That I thought was kind of funny. It was, but that, I don't understand her... where they drew that, where the parallel was. No, but I mean, I think it's funny just script wise, comedy wise, the girl can't take her own advice, but then her parents took it to heart. And you think here it comes the bailout. I'm glad they didn't though, because yes. everybody else is enabling her. The last thing that I want to, you know, her dad's still pulling quarters out from behind her ears. That's the most money that they give her. So I actually thought that that worked. Um, what I think could have worked better instead of the shopping spree before the article was due, I think this is where one could have been really effective was pre Miami. Like you mean to tell me the girl that's addicted to shopping finds out she needs to go on a business trip and she doesn't want a new outfit, a new bathing suit, new sunglasses and everything to go with it. Give me a break. I would have much preferred the shopping spree here. And then we would have really seen her struggle to get that first piece that she wrote started on her own. Instead, we get this trip to Miami where they are forcing us to believe that Luke and Rebecca are a convincing couple. This entire trip is so predictable. It goes exactly the way you think that it's going to. There's another girl involved that happens to be the one that she lost the job to at Alette that got promoted internally because that's, I guess, everybody from Dante West is there. But, you know, this is where you see Rebecca really start to get caught in her own web of lies. She lied about speaking Finnish and then... Luke introduces her to a group from Finland and then she's got to blunder her way through that. And Derek Smead calls. So like this is where you start to see the walls cave in a little bit. I could have done without this entire thing. Same. It's it doesn't it doesn't do anything to help either character. There, there's no huge comedy bit that makes it all worth it. it this is really just for the rom-com beat where they start to fall for each other. But you don't even buy it. Like, I don't buy them as a thing. Oh, I do. I feel like they did this more so that we would find out that his mother's the wealthy socialite, but he's out and going to do it on his own. That is the biggest thing that comes from them being in Miami, which could have literally happened anywhere. Right. Um, They get back to New York. We now learn, or Suze learns, I should say, that... Uh, nothing was purged from the collection. And she keeps buying things. So off she goes to the shopaholic meeting. This entire scene is so cringy. I like the other characters involved. Me too. But this is where it further disconnects whether she's addicted to shopping or whether she's addicted to high-end fashion. Because she says things like, when the card swipes and it gets accepted in that thrill, but also, 
this bag and this label and this and this and it's so nice and fresh leather and Italian shoes. It's like, I don't know what you are addicted to. I still don't know. They should have left it at credit card. Yes. And it would have been a lot more, meaning swiping the credit card and it would have been a lot more clearly defined. And she That ra- it's just the idea of the retail and the purchase. And she rallies the troops to all relapse. That's damn funny. That is funny. I wish we would have seen a little bit more with these characters completely falling off the wagon. But you do get the one because the leader of this group needs to end up being replaced. Yeah. Somehow it was funnier in Silver Linings Playbook. And I don't think it was (laughs) supposed to be. Oh my goodness. I'm just saying. Um, Let's talk about the dinner scene. Because now we're just at like another business dinner. And the other thing is now we're, we're also just getting scenes. Yes. Slapped together like there there's no real like through line anymore. No, it's just stuff. Yeah. It's just stuff where she has to blunder through stuff. I mean, honestly, this is where I do think that rom-coms really are a great study for screenwriting because there is a certain formula there is a certain structure that's going to make it work. And the movies like The Devil Wears Pradas and like the, which I don't even consider a rom-com really because it broke the mold so much. Um, You know, there are just tropes of this genre. It's how you write to that to break your characters out of them that set them apart. Um, But here, this, this is just... It's so formulaic, it's almost a Hallmark movie. Hallmark does it better. At least with Hallmark, you know what you're getting. Yeah, but Hallmark doesn't have as big of of stakes because the biggest thing is usually not like make or breaking on a job. Even the, the job is a plot point in a Hallmark movie because the person's going to leave town and the other yeah. person's got to profess their love before that happens. Right. Here, at least the stakes are a little bit higher because she needs a job to get out of her debt. But this whole thing just falls apart for me. I mean, I believe that um, the girl from Alette stole her date like she stole her job. Really, it's not even her job. She didn't even interview, and she was probably too unqualified for that too, but I digress. Um, I believe that she sabotaged her outfit. This whole thing with once you take the jacket off, her dress is similar to the waitstaff, first of all. A waitstaff is not wearing this at a fancy catered event. That that looks it looks very similar to the Playboy costume, if anything. It looks like the Playboy bunny onesie. Right. right. And she helps a drunk woman out in the restroom. Okay, fine. That's kind of funny. They really did it for the physical comedy more than anything else. She the the woman wants more champagne. Rebecca goes to the kitchen. And they put a tray in her hands because they think that she's a waitress. And this is where, like, any film that does something ridiculous like like this just loses me. No one is listening, but she hardly gets the chance to say, no, I'm not really a waitress. And everyone just starts yelling. And I get it. They're yelling so that she can't get her point across. Um, But the whole thing, 
is just silly. It's all done for this moment where Luke bails her out of it. And we could have gone about this in so many other ways. And here we are now at the end of the movie and she's still not doing anything to fix her own problems. It's still other people are either bailing her out or are dumb enough to to like not see through the lies. I mean, this bailout though is supposed to make us fall in love with Luke. It's supposed to make us buy them as a couple because he was willing to embarrass himself for her sake. But why, when she walked out of the kitchen, did nobody say, why are you carrying a tray? You're supposed to be at the table. It just, I don't know. Maybe it read better in the book. Who knows? Um, The blunder that really works for me, though, is exposing Rebecca through her ringtone. She has given Derek Smith a separate ringtone. And when he calls, she says, don't answer this. It's Derek. Don't answer this. It's Derek. And he happens. Well, this is where it falls apart. How he even got into her building without an appointment is beyond me. Because, first of all, it's a major publication. You're not just walking up without a set appointment. But second of all, his name is out there as a stalker. It's exactly. Been out He's there practically a got a restraining order against him. So how did you even make it in the building? It defies all logic. And, and frankly, what, what follows it is honestly, it's the most frustrating thing because it's the best scene in the movie because it shows off the acting chops of how good the cast actually is. The scene in the stairwell with Kristen Ritter and with Isla Fisher, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here because you go back to the shopping. Well, no, right after that happens, it's the Alette thing where they go to her and they're going to have her on television. Yes. That I'm jumping. That's what happens. Yeah. And Alette herself takes Rebecca shopping at Barney's. Now you think that that's going to be on the company dime. You'd think. Because it's the company's TV appearance. They've set it up that Alette is going to take her shopping. Why Alette takes her shopping and not just up to the Alette floor into their, you know, wardrobe room where they've no doubt got outfits upon outfits. And then this this is where we didn't do your cliche Devil Wears Prada fashion montage. Are you kidding me? Right. You're telling me, Jerry Bruckheimer, that you had enough product placement already where we didn't need a montage of all these outfits and shoes and bags? Nobody wanted to sponsor this scene, really? I find that hard to believe. But what you do set up is the choice that Rebecca ultimately has to make because she she gets the dress from Barney's. She also has her bridesmaid's dress on her, you know, which you would typically carry around Manhattan with you yeah, for your friend's wedding. Uh, and then she has to go to her Shopaholics Anonymous meeting where there is a new leader because she's corrupted the old one. And she realizes it's not a good look to walk in with her bags. So she asks the woman, not knowing that it's the person who's going to lead the meeting, can you hang on to these in your trunk? I don't want to walk in like this. And then this person completely oversteps, confiscates her possessions and brings the, brings them to be donated. And, uh, you know, she totally makes an example of Rebecca in front of everybody else at the meeting to try and keep them on the straight and narrow. 
and Rebecca tries to go and buy the dresses back. But of course, she only has money for the one. And heavy handed though it is, the woman asks her, which is more important to you to buy back? And we see her buy back the dress as if she doesn't have, you know, 50 in a closet at home that she can wear for this TV appearance. And she chooses the Alette dress instead of the bridesmaid's dress. And mind you, she's been trying to hide her identity the whole time. Now she can't wait to look a certain way on television. Going to completely expose herself and her identity that she's been trying so hard to hide this entire time. She can't wait to do it now. Which, if the other girl didn't expose her, she would have exposed herself already. The other girl being the one that took Alicia. her job. I, thank you, Alicia. I couldn't remember her name. Well, because she, su- because she doesn't matter. She, she serves this one purpose. She's a plot device. Yeah. She is. But Rebecca would have exposed herself had Alicia not also heard the Derek Smith ringtone. So that leads us to the scene in the stairwell. Yeah, the full breakdown, which is great. They're, the two of them are just so good. Yeah. Kristen Ritter and Isla Fisher are so good in this scene because you gave a heavy moment, you gave a good moment to two very talented actresses. It's an indictment on the rest of the film because they are so good here that it showcases how good they are and it sho- it showcases how you squandered everybody else. For the other hour and 42 minutes of screen time. Not only did they squander everyone else, but they also ripped off another film. So two years prior to Devil Wears Prada, which came out in 2006, there was another rom-com called Little Black Book starring Brittany Murphy. And similar to this, she's sort of lying her way through a job. She's working in television um, at a talk show. Um the talk show host was played by Kathy Bates and basically Brittany Murphy's producer exposes her lie because she's been using her boyfriend's little black book uh, for, I believe, a piece that they're doing on the show. But it was an excuse for her to investigate all of his exes that he never wants to talk about. But the talk show looks so similar because it's a smaller set. It looks so similar to the one that we're seeing here. Uh, and same thing, every, everything gets exposed on live television. So I was surprised that they would do something like that that is so clearly from another film. I mean, this entire thing is based off of things from other movies, though. Unless the only other thing is that maybe Little Black Book came from if this is a scene in the book confessions of a shopaholic i've never read it i don't know maybe this is true to the book and there was no way around it um but anyway so the lie gets exposed her life falls apart as you expect her father's willing to bail her out again to sell his rv like we don't need to fall in love with the dad anymore but the bailout is there. Thankfully, she doesn't take it. Um, everybody thinks it's going to blow up in Luke's face. Instead, he is awarded with a new magazine for having the guts to take a chance and follow his instincts. I don't know that I buy that. I buy the fact that you rewarding him because he went 
off the beaten path and hired somebody that wrote one, by the way, one successful column for you. We also don't know how, what, what the passage of time here is. A lot has happened since she wrote one article. It's one article because the other article is what got her in the door. It was a letter. I like to think that there's a passage of time and that Suze didn't plan a wedding in three weeks. Even though I believe it's only a church wedding because we don't actually see a reception happen. We just see the church and then they sort of are whisked off to go on their honeymoon, we can presume. Um, I'm thinking a month, maybe. We don't know. Nobody tells us. Here's the thing, though. I'll buy that... Luke doesn't necessarily want a handout, but he is getting what he wanted, a magazine on his own terms where you're trusting the creative and the writers to to be truthful. Right. So if somebody else is footing the bill, who cares? Right, because instead he leaves his job with all of the financial backing to go to a bank to get financial backing. The only thing that I do like about that scene is that it's a callback to what Rebecca tells him about being somebody worth investing in. But we we could have done without it. Because because Dante West is going to invest in him. If his whole thing was I want to own my own business, okay. Here you go. There you well, no, if he wants to own his own business, he's not going to stay with Dante West. But the, the whole notion that he's worth investing in, he was get he was getting that through Dante West. He got that validation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, speaking of turning down offers, Alette has, has taken notice, not just from their shopping spree, but she's noticed her in the halls and whatnot, the head of a magazine. I mean, I know we're not dealing with Miranda Priestley here, but... I, I don't really buy this. And she wants, she tracks her down at her home, at her parents' home, uh, to offer her a column for a let on budget shopping. I realize that Rebecca needs to turn down this job for the character arc, but this is the same thing as Luke. In reality, for a once-a-month column that's going to pay you well while you pay down your debt and work towards what you really want, what's the harm in taking it? And what she really wants the whole time is to work at Alette. But she turns on it, though, the minute that Alette talks about the Louboutin shoes and she's like, well, this isn't really budget friendly and et cetera and so forth. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's supposed to be our takeaway from it is that Rebecca was supposed to have learned her lesson and realized that she can't shop and realized that she can't just buy whatever she wants whenever she wants and she's got to exercise some control. So budget shopping may help that, but I guess she feels that she would be living a lie writing about budget shopping because she's not actually going to do that. She basically says, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. The whole thing is confusing. Like, it's not well written. Are we talking about budget shopping or are we talking about Louboutins? Are we talking about budget shop shopping so you can afford Louboutins? Like, it, Alette is talking out of both sides of her mouth, and I can't figure out what exactly it is that she wants. 
and it's the hallmark of horrific screenwriting. That is, one character is talking in one bit of dialogue, you walk away going, I don't know what they just asked me to do. That's exactly it. We see her turn it down because we know that she needs to grow, but the motivation for her to turn it down is just not there. The real growth comes from finally selling all her belongings. Which she should have done an hour ago. And then she could still have a job so she can keep shopping. Like, I guess that's it. The idea is that she didn't, she would have felt like a sellout if she took the job. But ultimately, you learned your lesson. You cleared yourself out of debt by, you know, stripping down to the bare minimum and just keeping what you need and and learning to get your compulsion under control. And then that's how you really test if you can do it. Now you've got the income but you're keeping everything off the cards. You're still resisting the urge to shop. That would be more growth than just her selling everything. She makes almost, you know, to the dime exactly what she needs to pay off all of the debt. And I really feel like the only reason they did it was so that they could have this scene where Derek Smith gets his comeuppance and she pays him in pennies. Funny, pretty well done, but... I, I don't feel like Rebecca lands in a great place. No, and instead we get the receptionist at the building comes back for one more line about it being the sale of a lifetime. It's such a waste of a good character. That's the line of the movie. That is the funniest line of the whole movie. Not the sale of a lifetime. It's the line that he drops at the auction, I think somebody asks him what he wants or, or what he would like for his mother to pick. Some, that's it. He was going to buy one of Rebecca's pieces for his mother. Somebody says, what do you want? And he says, sobriety. I don't even remember that line. That, that I think is the funniest line in the movie. Um, and then she gets her job with, Der- uh, with, uh, with Luke. And he saved her scarf. Yeah. I mean, I can't say that I'm disappointed with the ending. You know, I wasn't rooting for them to not end up together. It's a rom-com. You want to see the happy ending. But I just feel like if we wanted to have the full character arcs and have them demonstrate some kind of integrity, there was another way to go about doing this. Let's talk about our cast. Yes, the star-studded cast. It's pretty easy to see where Jerry Bruckheimer was able to assemble this roster following The Devil Wears Prada because I think that's probably where it was appealing for all of these actors. They saw what Meryl Streep did for Devil Wears Prada, so now everybody wants a piece of that pie. Yeah. Isla Fisher plays Rebecca Bloomwood, and I like Isla Fisher. I don't think think this was I, I my pro, you know what it, I just don't like the character it, it, it has nothing to do with her I there's nothing about this character that is at any point redeeming and that's my biggest problem and I hate to say it but I think that she could have been played by pretty much anyone and there were a lot of people in consideration for this role Reese Witherspoon she passed on it, I believe, because she felt it was too close to Legally Blonde. They did go for Anne Hathaway, which 
why would Anne <laughs> have the way? Why would you go backwards like that and basically do you know the same thing over again? Anne Hathaway's far too versatile to take a role like this again. Um, so it's not to say that Isla Fisher was scraping the bottom of the barrel. They were looking for a certain, or or maybe not even a certain type. They were looking for a certain kind of popular actress. So there were a lot of names in mind. Um, you know, I think she was cute. I think that she was super endearing. And if anything, she's what redeemed the character when there was very little about the character to even like. Hugh Darcy, or uh, Hugh Dancy, excuse me, plays uh, Luke Brandon. He's fine. I I like him. I like his character a little bit. I, again, I think that he's an enabler that can't see in front of his own face, which is a problem, considering we are supposed to buy them buy him as this very smart, independent sort of person. Um, it, this honestly. I'm just going to say this about this entire cast. It could have been anybody. There there's like as good as as good as the cast is on paper. Super talented. Literally any of these characters could have been anybody. I I just want to get that out of the way now. Um I mean, I agree with most of what you're saying for Luke. I mean, I I like Hugh Dancy as a leading man. Um you know, I think he did as good a job as he could with pretty much just a one note part very one-dimensional character right i do disagree with you though i buy them as a couple i did buy the chemistry there Kristen ritter plays suze um i i'm i'm gonna say this one more time because uh, this is going to this is my critique honestly uh, this is just my critique for every single character it's it's an incredible uh, talent in actor, um, and and they they're forced to play an enabler, and I can't get past it, and it frustrates me more and more with each passing name on this list. As far as Suze goes, the enabling bothers me less than how contradictory her character is because she does enable, but then she tries to discipline, and then at one point cuts her out completely. Um, so I wish they just would have drawn the line and had her pick a side, but I think as far as the talent goes, Kristen Ritter was the only one who managed to elevate what was on the page and make it like a solid performance. John Lithgow plays Edgar West. Um, I like John Lithgow. Um, I, I mean, this character is sort of a plot device. He's what's interesting about him is I kind of wish he would have been more of a cameo because they allude to West earlier in the film. Right. And I thought maybe like we'd see him at the very end. I feel like if he was this lingering presence, Mm. the, the fear of the unknown. And then he just walks in with a banger of a cameo. I thought that would have been great, too. But I thought Lithgow was fine. That would have been awesome. But at the same time, I also wanted more of this boardroom because you not only have him, you have Fred Armisen. And I thought those scenes, they they were kind of scene stealers. 
like they were more interesting. So I guess I, I I guess what I'm saying is that I wish there was like a stronger villainous subplot here other than Derek Smith and that maybe there was more um more of these two working against Luke and more sabotage there. And I feel like that would have enhanced the story a little bit because these boardroom scenes were so much fun. Yeah, I feel like Fred Armisen's character, whose name is Ryan Koenig, by the way, um, he's just bumbling executive, bumbling executive. He's Uh a lapdog. Yeah. But I feel like there was comedy there that they lost out on. I would agree with that. John Goodman plays Graham Bloomwood. We all love John Goodman in the dad role. Yeah, especially the dad role of a rom-com, like a Coyote Ugly. But to me, he he shined in Coyote Ugly so much more than he did here. Honestly, his best scene in this movie is at the end when he says he's going to sell the RV. And I don't remember exactly what she says to him something to the she effect she says of, i'll kill you well no 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 she said something to the, uh, this Which defines you no she says this defines yeah, you. yeah and he yeah. goes nothing defines me other than you and your mother and i think that john goodman delivers that line so well that's the shining moment in the film for the actor and for the character I would agree with that. And I also like the moment when she's selling all her stuff and he's trying to help her by describing it. And he's describing a coat and the way that the, the collar falls and the buttons and everything. I, I would like to believe that was ad-libbed and they just kind of let him run with it. Joan Cusack plays Jane Bloomwood. I wish that they would have given her a little bit more screen time because they almost play her off like the nudge of a mother. But she doesn't really nudge. Like, they don't commit to her one way or the other. Like, for comedy purposes, if she would have continued to be, like, mom prices, Mm. I think that it could have served for some comedy. I I like her. That's a really great point because she's the one who sort of planted the seed with Rebecca. And and gave Rebecca this complex or addiction or whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, so it would have been nice for them to delve into that a little bit more and how it's impacted their mother-daughter relationship now that Rebecca is grown. Um, they do sort of touch on it, but not nearly enough because she pulls out the book that they got, you know, thrifting. They they keep going back to these two are always thrifting. Like, okay, we get it. They're living within their means. But uh, the book is about, I, I think, savings or, you know, just managing your finances. And she's like, is it too late to give this to her? Because it, I think it was called teaching your teen financing or something like that. There was something that alluded to you would like only give this to a child. Right. But and the joke of is it too late? That's funny. Right. That lands. But they could have used it to explore this relationship a little bit more. Yeah. Leslie Bibb plays Alicia Billington. We know her very well from the first two Iron Man films. Yes. Because I'm looking at her and I'm like, I know her from somewhere. I thought I knew her from a Bond movie. And when I went in and I looked at the part that she played, I said, okay, because they they get very heavy on the makeup in this role. They gave her that dark bob cut. Um, So 
a plot device. It's so funny because every time I see Leslie Bibb in a role, I do that. And I'm like, is that Leslie, Leslie Bibb? Because I know her from one of the greatest teen series of all time. It was called Popular. It was on the WB. It was trying to be like Dawson's Creek and it only lasted for like a season or two. But I thought the cast and the writing was so incredible. And every time I see her now, like that's my connection to Leslie Bibb. And I I wish that she had had more success on the show because she does get roles in these big movies. But I feel like she's so much more talented than the way that she's showcased. But she's married to Sam Rockwell now. So she landed on her feet. Robert Stanton plays Derek Smith. Um, I, this to me is where we also missed out on some comedy. Like, it's funny the way that she has them convinced, um, that he is a stalking ex-boyfriend and the means that she goes through to avoid him. And it's sort of funny the way that he continues to pursue her and he doesn't give up. But I, I just wish that we would have had a little bit more between the two of them playing cat and mouse. Yeah, I would agree. I think had you eliminated the entire Miami scene, you would have had a lot more time for the cat and mouse uh, with him showing up at the most inconvenient of times and her dodging him. It would have been a lot more funny to see another scene where she had to dodge him in person versus missing all the calls. Um, But I do like that they gave him that moment where they really villainize him once he gets into Dante West and she sees him on the elevator and overhears the conversation of how, you know, you want to wear people down and find their weakness and and exploit it. And that's how you earn your commission. It gives him more of a motivation. And then one more huge talent that I want to mention is Lynn Redgrave, who they had play the drunken lady that slips on the beads when uh when the jacket when, comes when the apart jacket yeah starts ripping scene. yeah uh i mean you got a red grave in here for crying out loud so clearly they were attracting big talent but just it, it got squandered final thoughts i mean do i do i even need to say it <laughs> do i even need to say it um i am not opposed to watching rom-coms I think that there are some really funny ones out there. I mentioned a few earlier. I am also the first person I don't care to sit there and watch Hallmark Christmas movies. And I've talked about that before, too. So for me to sit here and go, wow, that was bad. Um, I have seen over 100 Hallmark Christmas movies. I've kept a tally on an app. Are you kidding? I'm for real. Because I wondered how many I had seen. Um... I'm okay. That's my when I Wait, tell what, you this is bad. What app is this? The Hallmark movie checklist. Oh my lord! I was curious. No, I started doing that years ago because you because when you start thinking back on some of them, when you can because uh, my thing is I always throw them on as like background TV when I'm doing something, especially around the holidays, right? And I but I want to see ones I haven't seen, but because they're all basically the same thing over and over again, it's hard to keep track of them. I was gonna say, how many small town bakeries have you seen saved? A, a, a hundred, about <laughs> at least a hundred. Um, so uh, this is not a small sample size, okay? If I'm if I'm saying, wow, that was bad, 
like wow this would i would rank this below any even the worst no there's one hallmark christmas movie that was worse than this that comes to mind um so this would be at the very bottom of my list for all of the reasons i mentioned before and i'm not going to go over them again i love learning new things about you on the podcast i really had no idea we need to get you on letterboxd really um i mean for me I, I'll watch the Hallmark movies. It's what you do around Christmas. Do I turn my nose up at them? Yeah, because for the most part, they're pretty bad. But I've never been one to turn my nose up at a rom-com. There are some that I really love that I'll return to and, you know, watch over and over. Like, I think 13 Going on 30 is really great. I love 27 Dresses. Um, but I really love the ones that manage to break the mold, like A Devil Wears Prada, which I mentioned earlier. I don't even think rom-com when I think Devil Wears Prada. Um, I love The Holiday with Kate Winslet and Cameron Diaz. So there are some that really manage to push through the tropes and break all of the conventions of a rom-com and do it really well. And that's what will keep me re-watching them. This, I don't think it was bad for the genre per se. I mean, like there were some really clunky parts of this story, but I think what this falls victim to is not adding anything new to the genre. It didn't do anything that we've not seen before. And that's what you're expecting when you see Jerry Bruckheimer behind it and this amazing cast. Um, so I feel like there were just so many ways that it could have been better. It could have been more elevated. And it's not one that I'm really going to go back and watch very often, if at all. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, when you see that caliber of talent, you expect this to maybe not be a genre breaker, but to do it better than the others in the genre. And I think that's it too. Even if the, I mean, the script was bad. Like I said, it felt very clunky as far as the plot points, but even some of the dialogue is just not very elevated. This cast should have saved it. And they, they really didn't. We want to know what you have to say about Confessions of a Shopaholic. You can join the conversation on social media at Monoreal Radio on all major platforms or send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is coming up, but first, a quick break. News of the Week is proudly sponsored by KMV Travel. KMV Travel is a boutique travel agency that helps families plan personalized vacations and create unforgettable memories in the most magical place on Earth. Planning for a Disney vacation can be stressful, but it doesn't need to be when you're working with a KMV Travel specialist who will work with you to customize the perfect vacation for you and your family. Your KMV Travel Advisor will help you determine what parks to visit on each day, ensure you know the ins and outs of essential tools like My Disney Experience and Genie Plus apps, assist with dining reservations, and of course, share their favorite hacks so you get the most out of your vacation. Visit kmvtravel.com to start making magic now. Hey everyone, this is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary, 
she looked it over and when she came back to me she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks however she also had new pricing associated with it um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing on top of that it was stress-free so all my vacations in the future are going to be through her because I don't have to think about it she plans it I give her some information in regards to what I want to do and create the itinerary for me she's a market expert she advised on which rides to attack first which restaurants I should schedule on what day and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation it was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. News of the week is very exciting if you are planning a trip to Walt Disney World later this year. Yes, this is news that actually I am very excited about because this is something that I've been wanting to book. Um, the reservations for the new cabins at Fort Wilderness are going to start booking on March 21st. Um, so I know people are really um, not thrilled that they lost that sort of rustic cabiny look to me they look almost more like a beach cabin a beach cabin uh not necessarily something that you think of um when you think mountains um but we're in Florida folks the theming is great but <laughs> you know we're still in Florida uh but anyway um it's just a much cleaner more simple design but what we love about Fort Wilderness is that you can bring your four-legged friends there. Um, so that that's something that I just personally want to do. I would love to book a family and their dog in one of these cabins. And, and I would like to book our family and our dog in one of these cabins. It's on the bucket list. And you may have a new reason to go this summer. Tiana's Bayou Adventure is opening, as Disney said, summer 2024. But when I hear summer 2024... I would imagine they want it before the first holiday weekend of the summer, quote-unquote. So, th nothing's confirmed, but I'm throwing a dart and assuming it's going to be Memorial Day, but I could see it being somewhere between Memorial Day and 4th of July. I would hope so, because Tiana looks so incredible. Disney Parks uh, released the video and the first look at the animatronic, uh, so if you've not seen it on social media yet, it's all over. It's TikTok, Instagram. I would highly recommend going to to take a look at it because she just looks unbelievable. The movement is so fluid. I would say it looks as good, if not better, than the shaman in uh, the Navi River journey. It just looks incredible and so smooth. And I love that they did the full face instead of the projection. Can we please get a do-over on Frozen? Yeah, um, I feel like it works with Buzz Lightyear because he's supposed to look plastic and like a toy, but I would agree. I, I would like to see them do that on Frozen. I think she looks great. Um, I'm excited to see where this is going. Um, I'm loving the feel of the bayou with that really leaning into New Orleans Square and the food and the music. Um, and beignets. We got beignets now. And... I mean, when else than Fat Tuesday to announce and show us our first look at Tiana? Um, but we are very excited uh, to hear your thoughts on the Bayou Adventure. Uh, you can let us know 
on all of that social media at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Monoreal Radio will always be free, but there are many ways that you can support the show. Please give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join the conversation on social media at Monoreal Radio on all major platforms. Share your favorite episodes with family and friends who may enjoy them. And of course, book your next trip with Jackie. Links to everything can be found at monorealradio.com. We all get one story. Make yours a magical one. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.